on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here and in the flesh, in the same room for the first time in God knows how long, Sally Rugg. It's me, Sally Rugg, in my corporeal form, my <laughs> bag of flesh and bones. It's me. Just hanging in there. Through, how many weeks into this election campaign are we now? Oh, uh, 40. Yeah. <laughs> Every week seems like five. Indeed it is. Only a little while to go. We've got a very special guest on the pod today, Sal. I know. I'm actually sitting here feeling a little bit starstruck. We're joined today by the incomparable, wonderful Barry Cassidy. Barry, thanks for being here. You bet, silly. How are you, Bess? Doing well? Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm enjoying this election campaign more than any other in a very long time. Why? Well, because I can cherry pick what I do. And I can say what I like. (laughs) (laughs) Swinging for the fences. I had 30 years of discipline at the ABC, and that has to be the way that it works. But now I'm pretty much free to express myself, no matter what. Does that feel like a kid in a candy shop a little bit? It is. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy it. Back in the olden days of the early 2000s, I suppose, when you'd get a DVD of a film and it's like an extra feature of the film you could get the director talking over the top of it and be yeah, like, oh, yeah, this and the, is, yeah, you know, this is, we yeah. really wanted to shoot it from the other angle, but the sun was blah, blah. Do you feel like going back over your insiders' episodes with like a, a narration, <laughs> a narration <laughs> over What the I was top? really thinking yeah. at this point. Not at all. But <laughs> what, what, what it does mean is that I can consume the media differently. Like when I was doing insiders and right up until the last election, I was still doing that, that I had to really be conscious of all of the media. I had to read The Australian from back to front. I don't have to do that anymore. I can just start at the back and stop there. I don't have to watch all of the ABC programs. I'm watching what suits me, when it suits me. That kind of thing is refreshing. And you could probably read a book or a magazine. It's got nothing to do with politics. I've done that as well. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> In the last week. <laughs> well, let's talk about how many election campaigns did you cover as a journalist? What was your, what was your first one? About? Fifteen. Yep. If you counted my first experience, it would be 16, but you really can't. That was 1977 and Malcolm Fraser, was, of course, was the Prime Minister and Philip Lynch got himself into a lot of trouble as Treasurer and had to stand down shortly before that. I had no interest in politics, wasn't covering politics, I was doing a court round, but they needed somebody to go out to Frankston and sit outside his office on election night and try and get an interview with him at some point because if they'd lost... It would have been largely his fault. Of course, they won easily. So I sat in the car with the crew until about 10.30. He came out, gave me five minutes. Of course, there was nothing for him to defend because they'd won. And that was it. That was my first experience with an election, with a federal election. But then it got busy from then on. (laughs) It hasn't stopped until now. No. Was it that particular evening and interview that changed your mind and got you interested in politics? No, no. Sitting sitting in a crew car listening to the election on radio wasn't exactly the most (laughs) inspiring thing. No, it happened a couple of years after that when a guy called Ian Baker was um, the uh, news editor uh, at the ABC and eventually became a Labor Party politician in the state parliament. But he suggested at one stage, look, you, we need a gallery reporter. They actually had a thing called a gallery reporter. He went there and reported what was happening below. And he thought that because I'd covered courts, at least I'd be accurate if uh, nothing else. So I took it on and I was up there five minutes and I was um, I was enthralled. I, I thought, how long has this been going on? <laughs> and so I asked to stay on full-time in state politics and I went back to night school and... Um, 
and filled in all the gaps. <laughs> night school? That was yeah, well, night, I did, yeah, political studies at night school because I really hadn't had much of an interest up until that point. So you're on the podcast on the job and I want to ask you about that job you had in the press gallery because I feel like the the press gallery is sort of like talked about all over the country in politically engaged circles as this sort of hallowed place of of power and of mania perhaps that it's sort of like if you're in the press gallery you're like in the thick of it all either no you're in the know you're yeah. in the thick of it you're highly influential it's all a bit fast and loose how was it like back then about in the 80s and yeah. and how do you think it compares well, it's vastly different. Um, I'll be really defensive because I was president of the press gallery at one point, but <laughs> no, I won't be. Look, it was um, it was a very different place. There were probably, I would say, 10% of them were women when I went up there in 1980, and that grew fairly quickly through through the 80s and 90s, and now I would imagine it's, it's pretty much 50-50. So there was that, that was a fundamental change, and of course the parliament was changing with it, and more and more women were, were going into politics. Um, but... The sad thing about it, and one thing that hasn't really changed over the last 10 or 15 years is the formula that, that operates during election campaigns where the junior reporters, more junior reporters, go out and follow the leaders mm. and then so the leaders get to pretty much control what's going on or you just you, you, you get a, you know, a, a sort of a mess, um, just a shouting match where you get the politicians totally on top of it, one or the other. What you don't get is a proper examination of the issues and what you don't get is they're not hearing what the leaders are saying when they're lying to you, when, when they're misleading you or, or whether there's huge gaps in what they're saying because these reporters don't seem to have the same depth. The senior reporters sit back in Canberra or wherever and then gather it all up and, and report from there. I think at some stage you've just... I know it's expensive and it's expensive to be on a plane to ask one question a doorstop, but the doorstops are becoming so central to it now. You, you look at what goes on through a day. A doorstop, they provide a few pictures for the cameras, how many times can you go and shop for vegetables, and then that's it. That's pretty much the day. And then various other strands of the media pluck out other angles, you know, and they will cover the major issues, but they do it that way. They do it separate from the leaders. They, they do it in their own way. Or they go out and do vox pops in marginal seats or whatever. One example that really annoyed me was when Scott Morrison went to Tasmania and he gave $4 million to a whiskey distillery owned by a billionaire who was making a profit. Now, what was reported that night everywhere was that Scott Morrison had given $4 million to a whiskey distillery. Nobody asked the question, Why? Why? Why that whiskey distillery? There are whiskey distilleries all over the country. Why whiskey? And then they, they would go somewhere else and, and there'd be a dog park. They'd gone from car parks to, uh, to dog parks. And nobody seemed to ask, why? why? Why did this guy get $4 million? What separates him out from all the other distillery, brewery owners or any other small business in the country? So that kind of thing really frustrates me about the way that these campaigns are being conducted. The campaigns have become more controlled. There's no doubt about it. The sort of access you might have had in the 80s on the road with Hawke or Andrew Peacock or Howard or any of those leaders would have been very different. The 93 campaign where John Hewson was proposing a GST and you know a revolution uh, in the tax base was pretty heated, wasn't it? And there were some yeah. public rallies that he held that got pretty rowdy and that was the last of the big public rallies. And it seemed after that that everyone closed ranks. Was that the yeah. moment where everything changed? I think it, it started to change in 83 when Malcolm Fraser had a rally in Melbourne in the old uh, city square then 
and he started shouting at the crowd. And when some unions t- unionists turned up and started heckling him and he started screaming, there is the true face of the Australian Labor Party. And then he, he started getting hysterical about putting money under your bed. That's the only way for it to be safe. And, of course, Bob Hawke responded that you can't put your money under the bed because that's where the commies are. And, <laughs> and, but it was that kind of over-the-top rally where you were shouting to be heard was a terrible look. Yeah. I'm surprised that it lasted all the way through to John Hewson that they were still having these public rallies. So they, they didn't work because you were up against it the whole time and it wasn't the kind of measured in control sort of persona that I think the politicians needed to have. But, you know, there's some um, John Hewson, crazy, crazy brave, trying to introduce a 15% GST from opposition. I mean, that's, that is right up there with the government trying to get re-elected arguing for a real cut to wages for, for the lowest income people. I think it's that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we've got at the moment. How would you characterise this campaign then? For, from the outside now, as somebody who's just watching it because you're interested in it and you don't have to have that critical distance where you've got to know everything and be able to process everything, what's your gut mm. telling you about what's been happening this time? Well, what I've found really interesting about this campaign, of course, is the emergence of the independence and not just independents as we've known them, but quite a specific group of independents. Almost all women, professional women, sophisticated women with impressive backgrounds who are running on three key issues, and they're all pretty consistent around that. You've got equality for women, integrity in government and climate change. Now, to see that emerge and and emerge as a real threat, we had the, the press gallery tell us in the start, we've seen all this you know, every time an election comes along, we're told that independents are going to get elected, and they never do. Well, you know, we've still got a few days to go yet, but I'd be surprised if quite a few of them uh, don't get elected, and that that will be a real turning point because it's not just the fact that the uh, these women are emerging in the way that they are, which is really, I guess, an, an offshoot from what Cathy McGowan managed to achieve in Indi in twenty thirteen, and it's just building on that. But it's a reflection of what's happening within the Liberal Party. And again, I don't think the media has really focused enough on what is really going on. In the past, you've had the DLP split away from Labor. That was a party, a political party. Then you had the Democrats split away under Don Schiff from the Liberal Party. But again, a party. What you're seeing this time is a split within the Liberal Party, but through the form of independents who are moderate, small L moderate women from the centre of politics, even though Simon Benson in The Australian described them as left-wingers. Left-wingers. Spare me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, if they're left-wingers, I'm a communist. But anyway, that's kind of um, what is going on. It's a split from the Liberal Party. It's disgruntled, moderate, mainly women within the Liberal Party who just can't abide any longer the drift to the right. So it's just as real as a new party being formed, and it's just as dangerous to them. And look at who they've targeted, you know, the, the fact that Josh Frydenberg doesn't know nine days out from an election whether he's going to be in the parliament beyond the, the next election. It's um, it's an extraordinary development. You're obviously completely right that the Teals are, I think, posing an existential challenge to the modern Liberal Party. But I also think that Morrison and, you know, his allies within the Liberal Party are doing a pretty good job of that themselves. The issue that is not an issue that Morrison keeps trying to make an issue comes from his candidate in Warringah, the hand-picked Catherine Deves, who keeps repeating these completely fictional, false, really harmful accusations about transgender 
kids of all people. And it's very interesting to me every time Morrison wheels um, Ms. Deves out again or repeats these claims again or indeed tries to reintroduce the Religious Discrimination Act again because this broad issue and specifically the Religious Discrimination Act is what people um, like Trent Zimmerman crossed the floor for. People like Dave Sharma didn't cross the floor but spoke out against. It seems to me that Scott Morrison, instead of trying to save those seats, is trying to cut them loose. And that could be one strategy that, you know, sometimes you hear that parties want to save the furniture as you go into an election they're probably going to lose. I think Morrison's not saving the furniture. He's sort of trying to rearrange the house a little bit. And it makes no sense because they are spending millions of dollars in seats like Kuyong, in seats like Curtin. These are huge, normally fundraising seats. So they're not getting money. They're spending money to retain the seats. Morrison's out there you know, essentially running a campaign for the teal independence in those seats. I think the Liberal Party is on the brink of completely collapsing after this election and will need to do some really, you know, serious and long reconstruction. Uh, see, Scott Morrison wouldn't deliberately blow up the party. It just seems to me he's made a judgment that he wants the party to go to the right. The fact that the religious groups are, are infiltrating the party doesn't bother him one bit. It's fit for him. And he's convinced that he can take the country with him. And when the senior vice president of the Liberal Party said right at the start of the campaign that it wouldn't bother her if two sitting members, who she named, right, Trent Zimmerman and Katie Allen, it wouldn't bother her if they lost their seats. It wouldn't bother me if we lost a couple of lefties because that then, and she calls them lefties, because that would then give us a chance to solidify the right's control over the party. That's the federal vice president. So it tells you that that's happening, that that contest is going on within the Liberal Party. And the day that Scott Morrison decided, he seemed to be worried about the Catherine Deves thing at first, but then decided, no, I'm going with her. The day that he did that was the day that he set adrift. Any semblance of hanging on to moderates, they don't care anymore. They don't care about that kind of moderate wing because they're sick of what they have to say about climate change and women's issues and so on. So that was an extraordinary moment. And, you know, he was helped to an extent, and I, I suspect in collaboration with, with parts of the media, and particularly News Corp, is when they tried to shift the goalposts around what Catherine Dews was saying. She was saying some vile things. She was comparing her fight against trans people, like a fight against the Nazis, for example. That, that's how she was framing it. But then they decided, no, it's only about one thing. It's only about women in sport. Trans women in sport, right? That's all we're talking about here. Well, it was far more than that. But the media then, News Corp, started to run stories on that issue and only that issue. So they tried to present it in that way to help Scott Morrison run the argument. And in fact, trans women in sport's got nothing to do with them. It's got nothing to do with politicians. The sporting groups, Francis, as you would know, have got a pretty good grip on this issue. Very sophisticated. Yeah, and they have a, they have a view around how it should be treated at the elite level and how it should be treated at the community level, they differ a bit. It's been it's, pretty well established within the Olympic Committee. They've mm. had guidelines on this since yeah. 2003. They don't so need Scott is... Morrison. They don't need <laughs> Catherine Deeves. 
giving them instructions about how this ought to be handled. But it does seem to me that this is mirroring what's happening in the Republican Party of the United States. And the talking points are very similar. So the issue around gender identity and uh, even what we've seen with Ron DeSantis in Florida around don't say you're gay, all of that stuff is filtering through here. And people on the right of the Liberal Party seem to want to drag the party in that direction. And they Mm -hmm. remind me a little bit of what the Labor Party was like in the 60s in the sense that you know, some parts of the Labor Party were quite happy to remain in opposition if they could be ideologically or theologically yeah. uh, rigid enough that satisfies them. They'd rather defend their ideological position than actually try to win to govern. It yeah. feels but, like it's but, heading that way. What a truly awful tactic to adopt. Oh, it's despicable. You pick up on an issue like this where they have no control over it, they're just raising a conversation for the sake of it, and they expose some of the most vulnerable people in the community to this kind of conversation. And it's, it's just awful. And when it gets to that level, it's of course it's like the worst of uh, what the Republican Party throws up at times. Are you surprised at how central wages and, and the old-fashioned bread and butter issues of campaigning uh, have returned to the centre stage? Inflation. I mean, inflation's, yeah. you know, that was happening when you were sitting around out front of Philip Lynch's house in, in the old yep. Kingswood Hold. Waiting <laughs> to, four weeks come ago, out. you wouldn't have picked it. But what happened, of course, is the inflation figure came out. Yeah. And then the wage case now is going to be heard fairly shortly. So it inserted itself into the campaign, and that's good. Quite a few issues have come along in that way. I didn't think the cost of living would be such a big issue. But really, when cost of living did become an issue, and then the wages thing comes out on top of that, do you really think the best approach, when you concede cost of living is a problem for the country, they Scott Morrison would concede it's a problem for his government. He thinks he's on top of it, but a problem for the country. And then you get an issue like the minimum wage and you want to argue that you want the minimum wage to continue to be below real value. It's been falling behind when you compare it with average wages now since 1999. This is an opportunity for it to start to catch up when cost of living pressures are so high. And he's still arguing that if you don't get 5.1% 5.1% if you get anything less than that, then they're getting a cut of real disposable income. It's it's mind-boggling that that's a position you would take to an election. You'd think he'd try it at least, even if he doesn't, if he wants the cut, he would try and fudge it in some way. He can't even bring himself to say, and he's had two opportunities in these recent debates, that yes, every worker should get, at the very least, the minimum wage. He has to pass it or try to find a way yeah. around. It's yeah. almost like, you know, he's like Fonzie that could never say sorry, like, oh, I was wrong. He just yeah. can't bring himself to do it, and Barry. I presume that Anthony Albanese, like the Australian today, was trying to suggest that he's backfilling on this and that he's not really committed to going to the um, to, to the Fair Work Commission and arguing for 5.1%. Surely he will. That's not the determination. That's just his position, and they would take that into account. But the really odd thing about it is um, the business groups themselves are conceding, is it 63 cents? Yeah, 3.2%. 63 cent increase. So all of this argument is around... 37 cents in the hour extra. And if that's going to send the country broke, if that's going to send inflation through the roof, then we must have a pretty (laughs) fragile economy and we must have a lot of businesses that are just really shouldn't be in business if if they're that close to folding up. (laughs) I was reading an interview uh, you gave the other day and I found part of it about Anthony Albanese really interesting and so I wanted to read your words to you. Should I put a voice on? No, disrespect. <laughs> um, and maybe get you to tease it out a little bit for us because yep. I thought it was really interesting. The question was around how you think Albanese would go as Prime Minister if he, if he got the job. You answer saying 
you know, you don't like to talk about personalities, don't think personalities should be necessarily part of the equation. But you said this time it's relevant, first because Scott Morrison's character is a real issue and second because Albanese is largely untested. And I just wonder whether a Labor government will be different than a Labor opposition because what I see in opposition is a party that's so skittish on so many issues. I think that's disappointing. I would hope if he makes it, he and his government will be bolder. Yeah. Look, two things on that. One, I actually, I fully support in terms of a political strategy the fact that he's made himself a small target this time around. I've seen too many cases where political parties get blown up because they have too much courage. And uh, that, that happened to Bill Shorten. So I accept his strategy was not only the right one, but it's actually worked. And it's worked a treat. What concerns me now is what happens beyond the election. During this election campaign, Labor is just as reluctant as the coalition to talk about climate change. Mm. And they fear, wrongly now, but they fear a scare campaign. The coalition can't afford to run that kind of scare campaign anymore because they know the conversation has shifted around climate change. So they should have been more braver. I think they should have gone harder against the government on climate change. And they didn't because they're still living in the past. They still think that they're vulnerable to a terrible scare campaign. If they were to do that, they would lose so many of those seats to the independents. You know, it wouldn't be funny. So that bothers me. Um, But there are a couple of other issues where I think they should be braver and I hope they will be if they're elected on May 21. I also get the refugee issue is different to the climate change issue, that the government could still quite effectively run a scare campaign. And sadly, a lot of Australians are vulnerable to that kind of thing. But when you hear Anthony Albanese say, of course we support the turn back the boats thing, and it just, you know, it hurts to hear it, right? Yep. There has to be another way, but I do concede that if he was to open up that issue now, or even in government, in a straight out way by saying, right, that's it, there will be no turn back the boats thing, it has to be handled delicately because you've got to take the community with you on it. But they're the kind of things that do bother me, and I just wonder whether the commitment is there. It'll be interesting on climate change. I I don't think there'll be a minority Labor government. I think it'll be majority. But if it was to be minority, then the one thing that these Teal independents and other independents will do is if the Labor Party needs that spine in the back over climate change, (laughs) they'll provide it. There'd probably an impetus in the party to do it, but not to campaign on it because of the fear of those Queensland seats being vulnerable to attack again uh, or losing any opportunity to win back those Queensland seats like Capricornia, Herbert and others, which have been traditionally Labor but have been lost in in recent elections. So hopefully that means that there's a change. But I I think you're right, Barry. I think there has been a fundamental shift, even in those, say, central Queensland communities, uh, that people acknowledge that climate change is real and that change is necessary which is a step beyond where they were in 2019, it's the how that really now is the discussion point that they want to have. And that's an issue of leadership, isn't it? Taking people with you on that conversation, and and that might be a long journey, but it's one that's unavoidable. Yeah, you see, on on climate change, when you say it should be okay in government, the figures that came out the other day suggest that Labor's position limits increases, but not to the extent that Glasgow wanted, Mm -hmm. and not to the extent that the Teal Independents and the Greens, most of the Teal Independents and the Greens are saying. So the jury's still out as to whether or not what Labor is offering is adequate to meet, I think, what should be an international obligation. And they're out there promising to open a whole bunch of new coal mines, which is nauseating. But um, in terms of the Liberals running a counter campaign on climate, you're right, I don't think they could run something that's effective. And also they're spending all their money in Kuyong. 
But I think Labor was has also been really afraid of News Corp attacks on climate change. And we did see a little bit of that two weeks ago or three weeks ago when the front page of every paper was talking about how Albo wanted to introduce a carbon tax by stealth. You know, complete nonsense. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a shame that he can't or won't too, by yeah, the way. Yeah. I fully support the introduction of a rent resources super profit tax on this podcast. <laughs> Let me just put it up there again. Yeah, um, well... So I wonder. There are a couple of issues raised at the last election that I think could will have to come back and mm. uh, be debated again into the future, but certainly not at this election. So I wonder, in terms of my personal interests and also my paid job, you know, whether Labor's been running this sort of small target campaign, have been working really hard to avoid attacks from News Corp through this election period. I wonder if they do win government, whether they are going to say, right, we don't care if we're going to be attacked in the tabloids. I, I mean, wake up much, every... Why not? How much more hysterical could News Corp become? Yeah. How, <laughs> how much, much more longer? anti-Labor and pro-government? They put stuff on their front pages that Scott Morrison's press office wouldn't put out, right? Because it's just too outrageous. And yet they run this stuff. And they worked hand in glove with the government over the Catherine Deves matter and tried to shift the goalposts around that. The most outrageous thing they do, of course, is the, the Sky After Dark thing, which is a straight-out propaganda on behalf of one party and one party only. Now, that's the media has a responsibility for imbalance and that part of the media just has no pretense to do it. And it's just a shame that we now have that political arm occupying that kind of media space. So that that's the worst abuse. But we're seeing it in the papers as well. And Michelle Grattan wrote a great piece in the conversation during the week about this, but she pointed out two stories in particular, the, the, the puff piece on Catherine Deebs that ran on the front page of the Telegraph and the other one was the, the effort to save Josh Frydenberg and they had the front page puff piece with a double page spread in the middle designed for one purpose. And it's just... If you said to the Liberal Party press secretary, write this and then you know send us in the copy, it, it wouldn't have read any differently. Well, if you bought the space as an advertising uh, pitch, it would have cost you an absolute bomb and they yeah, got it for free. Yeah. And that sort of thing is just shows you that the, the the bias is there and it's just, you know, Anthony Albanese takes a view and, and Labor leaders before him that it's better to work as best you can with them and he claims to have a better relationship with some of these News Corp editors than other Labor leaders have had. You don't see any evidence of that in the way that the election campaign is being reported. But you've got to give Albanese credit for one thing. He went and talked to Alan Jones during the election campaign. <sighs> Scott Morrison won't talk to Virginia Trioli, Raphael Epstein. He, he won't talk to... Lee Sales. Or a tingle. Lee Sales. Will he get the empty chair in Scott Morrison. (laughs) Scott Morrison will not talk to ABC presenters, but Albanese was prepared to go and be interviewed by Alan Jones. Well, should the 730 report give him the empty chair treatment in the final week of the campaign? Yeah, I think Would you do it if you were were the editor of the program? It probably made the point. I think if it was a debate and you had two, you'd invited (laughs) two people along, then it's fair. It's fair. You know that to this point, and it may change, but Morrison still hasn't committed to the press club. And that's a, that's a standard campaign event. In the last week of the campaign, you rock up at the press club and you do, and almost always by that last Wednesday and Thursday, the leaders know who's going to Well, gonna Barry, win, who's maybe he lose. won't go anymore because after Barnaby Joyce's performance last week um, <laughs> with the talk of the ceiling fans hitting people on the head and <laughs> the blood nose, it was sort of Giuliani-esque, um, you know, it's pretty hard to top that circus. Yeah, I know. He got, um, he got a blood nose while taking a question from uh, the journalist from The Australian. <laughs> I mean, boy, <laughs> imagine if uh, if The Guardian and the ABC had followed up. <laughs> Quite extraordinary. 
How are you going to spend uh, election night? How, well, how I'll be in Sydney for, for the Writers' Festival. And we thought that the election would be the previous week, of course. So we, we've got a, a session with the independents on the Thursday morning and then a session with political journalists on the Saturday morning. And now it's all pre-election. But So I'll be in Sydney. That's where I'm committed. And I'm doing the project on the Sunday, so I can't leave Sydney anyway. And I haven't got any commitments on, on election night itself, but I will be somewhere where I can be away from people <laughs> and just focus on the numbers because, you know, I've, I haven't been to an election party for 35 it's gonna years, say, of it's course, be because I've worked. Yeah. Um, and, but I just imagine election parties would be distracting. I right? hate <laughs> election parties. Yeah. Oh, so I'm, trying to watch, yes, go I'm, ahead. I'm like sitting by the TV saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. It's <laughs> like watching a grand final with, you know, on the television with people who don't like or don't care about With your three. side playing. Yeah, and they're yeah. getting up and walking in front of the television and, and someone taps you on the shoulder at some point and goes, oh, hey, when your team's 10 goals down, goes, oh, don't worry, it's only a game. Yeah. You don't want that moment. Yeah. You don't want that moment during the election. Barry, it's so good to see you. So good to see you, my friend. Enjoy your first election night as a as a just as a, a citizen and a voter rather than uh, I think I will. <laughs> <laughs> this is on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. That's it for another edition of On The Job. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to give us a rating on your favourite app so people can find the information and the inspiration and you know share the pod on your socials and whatnot. And we'll catch you for the next edition of On The Job. Of course, you can go to australianunions.org.au for any further information about what the unions are up to. And, of course, becoming a union member is the best way to make a contribution to a stronger and fairer workplace where you work. Bye for now. <laughs>